Okay. So I wake up. And I look up at the ceiling and I'm like, the first thing that hits my mind is like, whoa, I'm in Japan. Uh, we, the, the flight had taken, uh, the flight's like 12 hours basically. So we had gotten there in the middle of the day and then we had a bus ride from the airport to uh, the city. And that took two and a half hours because Tokyo, like Southern California, has considerable traffic. At that point, uh, we went and had like an orientation where there was, there was people yelling at us and, and, and talking about how we were you know, changing the world uh, by becoming teachers uh, to, and, and spreading English to Japanese students. Um, I tried to sleep during that, but it was very loud, so I couldn't. Then after that was over, my friend Brad, uh, who uh, had sort of in, in some ways inspired me to, to take this trip, and to, and to do this, uh, this first job. He had already some friends in Japan, so we went and we met them in the city. And I was exhausted. I had no idea what was going on. So finally, I get back to the hotel. I, I zonk out. And it's, it's, the, it's the sleep of the dead. And, and I wake up, and I, and I, and I open my eyes, and I'm like, whoa. The night, I mean, I'm here for two years. I don't know the language. Um... This is crazy. But at the same time, I, you know, I'm 22 years old, and I'm, I'm, I'm feeling very excited. Like, wow. And so on the, on the schedule, it says, you know, 8.30 a.m. is your first seminar of the day uh, where they're going to be talking to you about something. I don't remember what. I was completely uninterested. So I ditched the, uh, the seminar. And we were, in this, uh, we were in this hotel. It's in Shinjuku, which, uh, if you're familiar with Tokyo, is, it's, it's like uh, Tokyo's um, Times Square. It's the, uh, it's the heart of the city, the beating heart of the city. And we're in this huge, like, skyscraper hotel. And so instead of, instead of following uh, instructions, I, uh, I, I got on the elevator and I just pressed the top floor. Which I don't remember the number, but it was, it was very high up. Uh, it was a skyscraper. And I was just curious, you know. I'd never really been in, in, a, in a building that tall before. I'd never done that. So I, let's, let's just do it. So, we, it, you know, it takes a long time to get to the top. We finally met the top. I step out, there's this big long hallway, and on either end, there are, um, there, there are floor-to-ceiling, uh, side-to-side windows. And so, on both sides. So I step out, and I walk over, and first off, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm so high up in the air, like, I, it's, it's, it's mind-boggling. So I, I look down, and I'm a little bit scared of height, so I step back, but then I look out. And if, if you've ever been on the, on the open ocean, you, you know what it's like to look out and see nothing but water. Tokyo is a sea of buildings. You literally, I mean, literally, you cannot see far enough to see green. It is, it is city as far as the eye can penetrate. It is a sprawling mass of city. It, it, so I, I, whoa. I mean, I've been to New York, I, and New York's kind of an island. You can see there's, there's stuff other than city in New York. Or in L.A., we have a thing called the ocean, and you can look at it. Right? So, so I went to the other side, the same thing. As far as the eye can see, it's just buildings. Suddenly, I'm beginning to understand uh, how Ridley Scott's vision of Blade Runner came about. This, this, this world where there is nothing but, but buildings, but, but commerce, but industry, but prosperity. And let me tell you, 22 years old, I, I can remember it like it was yesterday. I, I felt as if the world was my oyster. And just waiting for me to crack it open and take the pearl. I mean, you could do anything. I'm 22 years old, and there is, as far as the eye can see, opportunity, 
There, there are undiscovered countries, as far as the eye can see. Over the next several years, as I was in Japan, I found things like, I found the store in Tokyo in the Roppongi district. That's their, their fashion district. You walk in the store, and the cheapest thing in the store was, this was 2003, I think, um, a, a, uh, this before the V-neck, you know, cut t-shirts were cool. Like now, if, if you, our friend Corey, he doesn't wear anything that, you, you have to see, like, down to here. The, the deep V is what they call it. Okay, this shirt, this is the cheapest thing in the store. It was pure white. It was deep V t-shirt. I liked that. I was like, I would never be caught dead in that, but partially because of all the chest hair. Uh, and then, and so, and so I, look, I look at it, 175 bucks. Cheapest thing in the store. Yeah, wow. I was like, man, that's amazing. Or uh, I found this place, um, during my time there, uh, and when my parents came to, to, to pick me up, I took them there. It's a, it's a restaurant. It's at the top of a skyscraper. They have 24-7 jazz playing in the background. And, and it's one of those places that sells the, the Kobe beef that you've heard so much about. This, my mom, I don't know what she was thinking, but she, she went ahead and she bought it. Uh, the, and it was an obscene, obscene cost. But, it, you know, once in a lifetime, right? The Kobe beef, what they do is they, they massage the cow, right? So the cow, the cow gets a back rub every day. And so when they cook the meat, uh, when it slices through, it's, it's, you know, they cook it medium rare, maybe towards medium. But the thing is, it has the, the texture of sashimi or um, uh, sushi. So when you're, when you're eating it, 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 it like almost, um, it squishes on the tongue. Which, I, I don't know, for Americans, I'm not sure that, I don't think my mom even finished it. So I was like, yeah, just give it to me. I'll, it's, it's $150 steak, I'll eat it. <laughs> yeah, unlimited opportunity. Just, can you imagine, 22 years old, and, and, and their parents are gone, they can't stop me. You know, obviously the government's not good at stopping me because I was supposed to be in a seminar. So I, I'm, it's like college all over again. This is insane. Well, in the ancient world, the city uh, was the place of unlimited opportunity. It was the place of unlimited possibility. And it was even more extreme in the ancient world than it is for us. Uh, in, in the ancient world, the city was not just, this is the place where anything can happen. But it was also the place of a certain type of security. We, we, think, about, um, we think about the city as a place of crime, right? And, and, and rightly so. There's a lot of uh, violence in cities. But in the, in the ancient world, uh, the, the city was the only place where you weren't alone. It, we, for, for the ancients, they would look at Orange County and they'd be like, that's a city. In the ancient world, if you weren't out, if you were out with your sheep or your donkeys and, and you were traveling the wilderness, you were a nomad, uh, you were at the mercy of everything around you. The city, if, if, if the, the cow gets a broken leg, you'd better know how to mend that. If your cloak tears, you'd better know how to sew. If your plowshare breaks, you'd better know how to be a blacksmith. The city was the place where all of that was available. So there was, it's a certain kind of security. It, it, if things went badly, the city was the place where you didn't have to worry so much. Uh, and, and we experience that today. I, I don't know anything about cars. Um, I, I grew up next to Glenn. Glenn is probably really disappointed in my inability to rebuild a 67 Mustang with a 450-something, I don't know, whatever, carburetors with the doohitchies and the, and the crankshafts, yes. Uh, but that's okay, because Glenn and, and his son Jeff introduced our family to Jacob, their friend, who is a, a, res, a reliable, responsible man. He's a fair trader. And whenever the car get, got broken, we would just take it to Jacob, and he, he knew his stuff. He would take care of us. He'd protect us. There was a certain kind of security in knowing that, and knowing that I haven't changed my oil since my dad gave up doing that in, in the, the late 80s. Yeah, so it's a good thing Jacob's around. It's a good thing Glenbow's helping me out. 
That's the city. The city is the place of security. And of course, beyond that, it's not, it's not only the place of unlimited opportunity, unlimited possibility. It's not only a place of security, but it's also the place of prosperity, of wealth. And that too brings a kind of security. Uh, that's especially um, uh, present to Aaron and I as we're trying to, you know, we just left adolescence here in our early 30s. And, uh, and we're trying to make our way in the world, and we understand how important it is to be able to, be, to have prosperity, have opportunity to, to develop the money that we need in order that we can feel like we have some safety. These are all the things that the city it, it signals to people in the ancient world. And so with that in mind, let's read the text. Uh, as, as, uh, as Neil um, has made something of a tradition of it, let, let's, let's stand as, as we read. Uh, if you have your, um, your notes that I've passed out. I've, I've given you the common English Bible version. Uh, it's almost identical to the New King James. There's one word that I like having changed, and, and we'll talk shortly about that. All right, Genesis 11. All people on the earth had one language and the same words. When they traveled east, they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them hard. They used bricks for stones and asphalt for mortar, the engines of industry at the time. They said, come, let's build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. That's Shamayim, and we'll talk about that in a second. And let's make a name for ourselves that's translated, uh, that's, let's be famous. Let's, let's make a famous city uh, for ourselves so that we won't be dispersed all over the earth. Then the Lord came down to see the city. And uh, in, in the vision of the ancient world, God is up above the, in the heavens. And, and so God travels down and maybe with his, um, his uh, heavenly um, retinue to check out what's going on. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the humans built. And the Lord said, There is now one people, and they all have one language. This is what they have begun to do. And now all that they plan will be possible for them. Come, let's go down and mix up their language there so they won't understand each other's language. Then the Lord dispersed them from there all over the earth, over all the earth. And they stopped building the city. Therefore it is named Babel, because the the Lord mixed up the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them all over the earth. Uh, you may be seated. And, and you'll note that I've, I've just given you a little bit of the, uh, some of the Hebrew there, uh, so you understand why this is funny to, the, uh, to, to those who speak Hebrew. They say, Wenabala, uh, and that, that is from a word called Balal, and that's a wordplay on Babel. So when they're saying Babal, they'll hear, uh, when they say Wenabala, they'll hear Balal, and they'll hear Babla. And so those are, it's, it's like, it, it's a funny joke. No, I'm serious. It's hilarious. Yes. Mm -hmm. Now, when we read this text, one thing I'll I'll note that uh, I I replaced, or I used the Common English Version, or Bible, because the word sky, the Shamayim, is translated sky in the the CEB. In most translations, that that word comes out as heavens. And uh, that's not a bad thing. Heaven, in the ancient worldview, the sky um, is both what we think of as the sky, the up there, the air, the place where the birds are. And it is also, beyond that, it is the, the place where God lives, or, the, or in, the, in, uh, in pagan uh, theology, the gods live. And so up above is where they're all uh, hanging out. And the problem with the, the translation heavens is that it, it, it sort of focuses our mind, our ears in English. It focuses us on the whole God living there thing. Because when we use the word heaven, we're typically not referring to the sky. We're typically referring to the place where God is, maybe the place that, uh, that will we'll go in the resurrection or, or something like that. We tend to associate it with the afterlife rather than a physical place up there. 
And I, I want to change that because I think, or I wanted to emphasize the word sky because I think what's going on here is the, the people at, at Babel, they're, they're doing what anyone would want to do in the ancient world. They're, they're, what they want to do is they want a place that's safe. They want a place where there's endless opportunity. They want a place where there's a possibility for wealth and for prosperity. And so what they're thinking is, they're thinking, what we'll do is we'll go and we'll build this huge tower. And so everybody around, in the ancient worldview, the, the cosmology is something like there's this dome, right? And, 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 there's, and up at the top of the dome, there's the sun, the moon, the stars. Um, and depending on, on where you go, sometimes the stars are thought of as like pinpricks in the, in, in the, in the dome that lets light through. Uh, but depending on how, how they, they have it, if you have a dome, right, and the earth is flat and it's basically circular around and there's a dome and you've got a big tower up there, no matter where you are on the earth, you're going to look and you're going to see the tower. It's going to act like a beacon so that everyone in the world will know there's the safe place. That's where we go for opportunity. That's where we go for the possibility of wealth. That's the place where we'll be finally secure. Let's be famous. And if we're famous like that and people start coming, what's going to happen? We're not going to get spread out everywhere. And, and that way the blacksmith will be here and the cobbler will be here and the tailor will be here and we'll have the, the farms and the agriculture and everyone will contribute to our, our bustling new economy. Which sounds to me like a really good idea. You may know that uh, this, is a, this is a true fact. It's, it's absolutely... Uh, from my perspective, it's almost unbelievable, but it is a true fact that in, I, I believe it's the 1960s, uh, the United States of America put some, put some guys in a, in a metal box and sent them to the moon. And they got out of the metal box and they walked on the moon. Talk about unlimited possibility. Talk about the promise of, of, of security and endless prosperity. I mean, that's the United States of America. That is one of the things that makes this place wonderful. And I think that's a good thing. I think that's wonderful that we live in a place where, where as high as you can dream, you can go. We, we, now they talk about maybe someday colonizing Mars. They, they talk about these, these amazing things. We have, we have boats that go underwater and then can sink in the deepest parts of the earth. It, this place that we live in, it's like Babel on steroids. It is the ultimate. And I don't think that's bad. I think it's a good thing. I think that, I think that God wants a place where there is pro there's the endless possibilities. I believe God wants a place where there's security, where there is a chance for prosperity, for wealth. And so that makes this story insane. What kind of God do we have? So he sees all these people get together and they're, and they're doing what any normal people would do. They're, they're looking for a chance to make their way in the world. And God comes down and he's like, Ugh, gosh, I, I don't know. He almost sounds defensive, right? He says, he says, there's now one people. They all have one language. This is what they've started, their big tower. And now they everything they plan will be possible for them. They're going to do anything they want. And so the, the ancient readers of this text were confused Especially those uh, rabbis who had grown up in, in Jerusalem or in Alexandria, great cities, where they had experienced the power of the city, where you're able to, to get educated and learn more, where you're able to have opportunity, you can rely on others. They knew that cities were a good thing. And so they're looking at their t this text and they're like, this is, this is nuts. What? Is God just, is he just mean? Is he just anti-city? He just doesn't like urban environments? 
What, what is wrong with God? And we have a little bit of an insight into how they dealt with this problem, some of the ancient rabbis. Um, there, are, there are texts that have been compiled. They're called Targums, or the Targumim. Uh, they, we don't know exactly when they date. The one that I'm about to read from you is probably 15th century AD or slightly earlier. But the Targums are, uh, they're collections of, of what's called midrash. It's where the, the rabbis would talk, they would, they would uh, recite the stories of scripture, and then they would add in little commentaries, little extra details to kind of flesh out the story for you. And so it, this, this process began probably around the second century BC and has continued ever since. And these rabbis who, who we're about to read from had, had grown up on the Mishnah, that's, the, uh, their, um, that's uh, a, a collection of, of Midrashic uh, theology, philosophy, things like that. So they, they had this particular worldview, and they encounter the Genesis text, and, and look at how they change some of it. They say, uh, verse 4, And they said, Come, we will build us a city and a tower, and the head of it shall come to the summit of the heavens. Uh, this is a, an old, old translation, because I didn't want to, I don't, translating Hebrew is really, really hard. <laughs> I can't do it, so I use an old one. Um, the summit of the heavens, you can think sky there. And we will make us an image for worship on the top of it and put a sword in his hand, in the idol's hand, to act against a ray of war, like, like kind of putting up the fist to God before that we be scattered at the, on the face of the earth. And then it goes on to say the Lord comes down and he looks at this and he's really upset. He brings an uh, army of angels and they uh, change their languages and there's, that explains why there are 70 different languages, something like that. Um, but the point is that the rabbis are looking at this and they're like, this doesn't make sense. Cities are a good thing. There must be something else going on. And they say, ah, I know. This isn't just any tower. This is an idolatrous tower. This is what the, the, the problem with this tower in this city is not that cities are bad in themselves. It's that, it's that these guys, these guys from Babel, and they, they capitalize on the word uh, at the very beginning of Genesis 11. People on the, uh, when they traveled east, that could also be read as they came from the east. Anytime you read the word east in the Old Testament, it always means pagans. And so they capitalize on they think, oh, these are, these are pagans, and they, they're, they're just doing their worship thing, and they're, they're putting their fist up at God, so of course he has to mix them up. That's possible. And I think some of, our, some of the traditions of, of Christian interpretation have, have, have gone along with this. The, the problem here is pride. The problem here is pride and idolatry. But I want to suggest a different way. Maybe the issue... Is not that God doesn't like cities. And maybe the issue is not that these people were idolaters, although they may have been. Maybe the problem is that God knows something about us that makes him think this is a really bad idea. At the beginning of Genesis 9, two chapters before, God uh, makes a, a statement to Noah and his children. He says, I want you to multiply and fill up the earth. I want you to spread out. Now, in one sense, the problem with Babel is that they're disobeying this. They, they don't want to be spread out. They want to be together. They want to have all the, be- the blessings of the city. But maybe in another sense, the reason that God wants us to spread out is something that has to do with us. And it has to do with something that's wrong with us. And so I want to suggest to you that the problem with us that God sees is that we are people who need to go on the road. Recently, I, uh, <laughs> I went back and I started reading some of the books that I liked as a, as a 12 to 15-year-old. 
uh, you know, working with the junior high and the high school, and they're always talking about you know, the Hunger Games or the vampire books, whatever it is that they're into, I, I hear about. It. And so I was thinking, you know, I've read these books, and they're all awful. So I wonder, I wonder if, I wonder what it's like, what the stuff I liked was like. So I went back and read it, and one of the things I read uh, was actually recommended to me by someone who is here today, Scott Eichler, when I was uh, very young, or younger, 12, I don't know. This is all in my head. It could be all made up. I don't know. But this book's called The Sword of Shannara. And it's a fantasy book. I was a big fan of, of, of fantasy. I still am. I love the dragons. What can I say? Dragons and, you know, magic and swords and fairies and all that. It's awesome. So I went back and I started reading this book. It's horrible. <laughs> I mean, seriously, I'm looking, I'm looking back at my, at my 13-year-old self or whatever. Thanks, Scott. I'm like, are you serious? This guy, the only adverb this guy knows is quickly. Everything's done quickly. It's like, he got up quickly, <laughs> and he went and had a conversation quickly, and he dodged the arrow quickly. It's like, how else do you dodge an arrow? Like, oh. No. Everything, ah, just awful, awful book. So, I, so then I, I started reading another one. Uh, my parents at some point got me some sort of uh, collection of classics. And there's, uh, you know, Robert Louis Stevenson. He wrote Robinson Crusoe. I hated that book. But he had a book I did like. It was called Kidnapped. And it's this adventure story where this kid, uh, his parents die. They always die. Uh, and he's, he finds out that his uncle is trying to keep his inheritance from him. And his, his uncle sends him off in, like, into slavery as a pirate. And it's this long, epic tale of how he's got to, like, how all these different things that happen sort of converge so that he's able to confront his uncle with a blisteringly excellent legal argument and send him off to jail. It's, it's really, it's, it, I, it's better than Sword of Shannara, Scott. Just much better written, at least. Um, but I started thinking about the difference between these two books, Kidnapped and The Sword of Shannara. And the difference is one of genre. The genre of uh, The Sword of Shannara, it's fantasy. It's uh, <laughs> chock full of things that only nerds like. Uh, and the first one is Adventure, which is a lot more mainstream. Um, and so a lot of people, uh, they, they think that what fantasy really is, is it's just you take an adventure story and you sort of gin it up with some cool magical stuff, and, and that's what makes fantasy genre. That's not actually the case. What makes fantasy fantasy is that there's this, this intense, it's, it's subtle at first, but then becomes really pronounced, pivot, turn in the author's attention. The author turns to the road, to the quest, to the journey itself, and that becomes the point of the story. So if you, yeah, that's uh, in your, your notes there. The literary, literary pivot from adventure to fantasy takes place when the road becomes the point of the narrative. Let me tell you how this works. So in Kidnapped, the whole point of the story is how is he going how he, how he to get his uncle back? How is he going to get his house? How is he going to get his money? And so everything that's happened, it's always in the back of your mind, is how it's all going to work out. If you read high fantasy, on the other hand, you get these bizarre little, from my perspective now looking back, in the sort of scenario, they're walking along the road, right? And then it tells us that they sat down and they, they unwrapped their, their loaves and they had some hard bread some cheese, sort of descri describes for you what, you what kind of meal you might have as you're on the road. It's a very funny thing. Why do that? It's because fantasy authors, and especially J.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, when they're basically inventing the genre, they understand something about the journey, about the road, something very unique, that it matters what happens on the road. Because the road is a place of deprivation. 
The road is a place of trial. It is a place of hardship. It is a place where you don't have what you need all the time. And so what happens on the road is the heroes of the story are exposed for who they are. The heroes of the story have their flaws put in their face. Their noses are rubbed in who they are. And it's not always pretty. And then what happens is all the circumstances of the road press in on them and they're forced to change. They're forced to become different, to prepare to meet their destiny. In an adventure story, the hero just has to kind of go through all the things. They're already awesome, and everything they do is great. And then at the end of the day, the circumstances align, and they get what they want. In fantasy, the road itself and the circumstances that fall on it radically alter you. They take you from the person that you are to the person that you must be. And I want to suggest to you that God comes down and he sees the city of Babel and he's not upset about cities, but he looks at all the blessings of the city, at at the endless opportunity, the possibilities, the security, the wealth. And And he looks at it, he looks at the people and says, you're not ready yet. It's not appropriate yet for you to have these things because you haven't lived life on the road yet. You haven't experienced the deprivation, the privation. You haven't experienced the way the road exposes your flaws and changes you and shapes you. In fact, you haven't been in a place where you have to depend on me. You haven't woken up in the cold, shivering, wondering if you're going to make it another day. You haven't questioned whether or not your family is going to survive. In those moments on the road, when that happens, you will look up to the heavens and you will see me and you will fall at my feet and you will beg me to help you. You will be humbled. You will see that you are not adequate for the life that you want to live. You will not be enough. And you will have to change. You will have to depend on me. That's what the road does. This tower, this city, it's not a bad thing, but you're not ready. I think we have some warrant for reading it this way. Uh, If you think about the scriptures as a whole, what does God always do? Abraham, I'm calling you out for a journey. And on this journey, you're going to find out you just don't have what it takes. You're going to have to trust me. Israel, I'm calling you out from slavery, and I'm going to take you to the promised land, but I'm going to let you wander for a long time until you find out who you are, until you look yourself in the mirror and recognize that you need me. Israel, you've been exiled to Babylon. You long for the time when you will return. But you must wait. You must know what it is like to live outside of the city. You have to learn. You have to be shaped so that when you go back, you won't make the same mistakes. Our God is the God of the road. He is the one who calls people to the road. And he is the one who allows the road to shape us. He is the one that is there for us when we're crying out on the road. I mentioned Japan. During those two years, I have never been lonelier in my life. Don't get me wrong, two of the most amazing years of my life. Absolutely unbelievable, the experiences that I had and uh, the way it changed the way I see the world. But I'll tell you one thing. There were times 
where I was the, the fish out of water, and there was only one person who was there who spoke my language. And that was God. The story doesn't end. The end of the road takes place in Acts 2. The people at Babel have been dispersed. Their languages have been mixed up. They're forced out on the road. They're forced into exile. They're forced to to experience the place where they must depend on God. And time passes and time passes and time passes. And again and again and again, God sends people out on the road, sends people out on the road. Whenever they gather in the city, they always make mistakes, sends them out on the road. And then listen to this in Acts 2. When the day of Pentecost had come, oh, I'm sorry, I should preface this. Jesus comes. And in Jesus, he represents the journey that we all take. And even in some ways physically, if you read the Gospels, Jesus is wandering around Nazareth, and there's this moment in Luke, um, Luke records it, where he says he sets his face to Jerusalem, and he embarks on this journey. And, in, and he represents us as he makes this journey. He goes all the way, and he goes on the most uh, depriving journey. He goes on the most horrible journey, the kind of journey that ends in, in torture and in death. He's raised again on the third day, having representatively taken us all on the road. And then this happens. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. They're all together in one place, like Babel. And suddenly, from heaven to sky, there came a sound like a rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as of fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. So there's little firing, flaming tongues. I'm not sure if it was actual fire, but there was something over each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now there were devout uh, Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. They've been everywhere and they've returned. They've been on the road. They've been out in exile. They've been to all these places and they've come back. And at this sound, the crowd gathered and was bewildered because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Galileans is code word for hicks. They don't know what, how could these guys know our, our languages? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to, the, to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, everywhere in the known world, Cretans and Arabs, in our own language we, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. All were amazed and perplexed, saying one to another, one to another what does this mean? And then Peter's going to tell them what it means. It means that you've reached the end of the road. The journey has ended at last. But check this out. The journey's end does not mean that Babel is undone. The languages that the people have, have, have been given all over the world, the, 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 the lives they've lived on the road, the traditions and the families, all of those things are still intact. They bring with them the history of the road of all the challenges they've faced and the ways that those challenges have changed them, the the flaws that have been exposed on the road, they bring that with them. And in the person of Jesus Christ and in the the power of the Holy Spirit, they are yet united, bringing all of these things together. It is as if Babel is the place where everything was wrong and now the church is the place where everything is right. It is the new Babel. It is the Babel that has been, it's the Babel that people are ready for. They have been prepared. They've been on the road and now they're ready. To be one people, united in Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit. 
The road changes us, and the road has changed us. And I think this leaves us with some questions. Because Jesus in himself has, has, has taken the road for all of us, we have a spiritual inheritance. We have a freedom that comes with being a part of the church, of knowing our eternal destiny. But there is still a sense that we as human beings still struggle with the flesh, and we are still people who have to be sent on the road. And I would suggest to you that everyone here has either been on the road, or they are on the road, or they're about to go on the road. And by the road, I don't necessarily mean a physical journey, although that often happens. And in physical journeys are a lot of the time the places where we're forced to confront uh, who we are and, and to have our dependence on God uh, increased. But it doesn't have to be there. It doesn't have to be physical relo- relocation. It could be anything. It could be unemployment. It could be divorce. It could be anything that shakes up your life and changes it and turns it upside down and, and rattles it around and throws it out. Anything that takes you from where you are and and sends you into a place where you're no longer certain, you're no longer secure, the blessings of the city are denied to you. You no longer have unlimited opportunity. You no longer have security and and the possibility of of wealth that will bring that security. Those things are taken from you and you're set up and and you don't know how it's all going to land. That's the road. And I submit to you that everyone here has either been on the road or is on the road or in some cases, maybe about to go on the road. And so for everyone here, I say to you, be of good cheer. This is not, the experiences that you've had or are having or are about to have on the road, they are not new. They are the sorts of thing God has been doing all throughout history. He has been taking people on journeys time and again. And the journey that you're on or that you've been on or that you're about to go on is going to be a journey that will shake you and it will press you, but in the end, it will make you into the person who is ready to grasp the blessings of the city to embrace your destiny. Neil wanted me to, when we were discussing this, Neil wanted me to talk about me and where I see myself on this, on this, uh, you know, on the road, about to go on the road, all of that to... And I'm not super comfortable doing that, but I will just say this. Um, I feel like I'm a person who's, who's been on the road for 10 years, a decade. Um, I don't feel settled. I don't feel um, like things are in order. I don't feel like the blessings of the city have fallen upon me. I don't believe... I, I, I um... I worry uh, about finances. I, I worry about, uh, you know, a home uh, for my family. I worry about my career uh, as I'm trying to be an academic. Um, and I feel like I've been trusting God, and I've been trusting God, and I've been trusting God, and He's been taking me, and He's been providing. And I believe that He's, he's there, and I believe that at every turn, He's shown Himself to be real to us and our family. Um, at every moment, I, at, my, at my darkest despair, when, when, when the roads seem too hard, God broke in and, and provided for us manna. Um, and so the road has changed me, and it, it, I, I, I can look at the road now and say, what I, what's been exposed is that I'm not enough, that I don't have what it takes uh, 
um, to be a great man. <laughs> um, and that's, uh, that's really, that's difficult for me. But in that, um, I, I feel as if I can claim um, that God in, your, in my weakness is your strength. Um, and that when I finally get to the city, <laughs> I promise I won't forget what you brought me through. And I pray that for everyone here. I pray that for all of us. That when we get to the city, we won't forget what it took to get here. That these blessings won't overwhelm us and we won't become people who are complacent. That we'll remember that we were in a place where we had nothing and we had to beg for the mercy of God to take us through. For those of you about to go on the road, be of good cheer. It is not easy, but he will be with you even when it seems like he's not. Coast Bible Church, we have a God who is a God of the road. He takes us to far countries, but he always brings us home. And our final home, our final city, our final Babel, our final Jerusalem will be the new heavens and the new earth when all the deprivations of the road will be memory and we will be united as one people carrying the scars of the road with us, just as Jesus carries the scars in his hands and feet. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God of the road. We thank you that you push us into places that are hard for us. We thank you that you fashion us, that you shape us, that you expose to us our weaknesses. but that you send your manna from heaven, that you, you carry us through, you bring us home. Lord, I pray for anyone here today who is on the road that you will send your spirit in undeniable ways to carry them, to give them succor, to let them know that you haven't left them behind and that they do have an eternal destiny with you. God, for those who have not been on the road, prepare their hearts. God, Prepare them to face themselves. Prepare them to become truly dependent on you. For those who've been on the road, Lord, shake up complacency. Destroy it. Bring to their mind those times that they had nothing but you and that you carried them through. Father, we thank you most of all for your son Jesus who represented the road for all of us, who took it to its hardest and most gruesome conclusion and who by your power lives again, seated at your right hand, and is preparing to take us home. We love you and we thank you for who you are and who you've been to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.